This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. Good morning. Welcome everyone to the first of three special panels uh, for the Center for Security and Politics at the Goldman School of Public Policy. Uh, in conjunction with SEGA. So now, without further ado, let me introduce Professor Susan Hyde, who is a professor of political science, SEGA affiliate, and the interim co-director of the Institute of International Studies at the University of California at Berkeley. Take it away, Susan. Great, thank you. Uh, Good morning, everyone. It's my great pleasure to moderate this panel on election security with a very ambitious goal of covering in a mere 90 minutes what the US can learn about elections from the rest of the world. Uh, First, thank you to SEGA and to Berkeley's new Center for Security and Politics for setting this up uh, and to Professor Napolitano for kicking things off today. Uh, Congratulations to you on the new center. We're all just absolutely thrilled with everything you're you're bringing to campus. So thanks again for bringing us together today. Before I introduce the panelists, I wanted to say a few words about the topic of election security, as I think it's one that invites a diversity of interpretations. Today, at least on this panel, we'll be talking about election security using a relatively expansive definition. Election security broadly conceived is something that includes procedures for running free and fair elections, protecting elections from efforts to undermine their democratic character, uh, which would include but not be limited to overt forms of election fraud, uh, politically motivated election violence, which can occur before, during, or after elections, foreign interference in elections, uh, which would include international efforts to undermine voter support for democracy, Um, as well as efforts to falsely undermine voter confidence in the electoral process. Uh, I'm here in part because I've been studying most of these issues for a long time, um, in part by looking at efforts by international actors to support democracy and elections around the world. As part of that research, I've served as an international election observer on formal delegations uh, for elections in Afghanistan, Albania, Indonesia, Liberia, Nicaragua, Pakistan, and Venezuela, uh, with several organizations, including the Carter Center, Democracy International, and the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. Um, I've also done some related work in Bangladesh and in Cambodia, um, and part of my research focuses on global trends in elections across democracies and autocracies. In all this work, uh, election security is a topic that I've spent quite a bit of time on and that I'm passionate about. Uh, One of the things that's very striking about my very recent experiences covering this topic um, is that uh, although I'm for the most part focused on efforts by outside actors to influence elections around the world, uh, for the first time in my career, I spent um, in 2020, the US presidential election cycle, talking to journalists about how my research on election violence, election fraud, democratic backsliding, and the potential resilience of democratic institutions Uh, might be more applicable to U.S. politics. Um, So while in some ways this was disappointing as an American citizen, it's also something um, that for those of us who do focus on elections around the world and international standards for democratic elections um, has probably been a long time coming. Uh, 
it is the case, I'm aware it's the case that some Americans, uh, perhaps even some in the audience or many in the audience have bought in deeply to this idea that American elections and American democracy are exceptional and perhaps beyond reproach. One thing I wanted to begin by emphasizing is that it has been clear since well before I started working in this area roughly 20 years ago, um, that US elections and election administration have long fallen short of what are now international standards for democratic elections. Uh, the, US, the US is, uh, for example, the only country in the world that explicitly allows for partisan administration of elections. It is strange for other people in other countries to hear that uh, we allow uh, elected secretaries of state to both run elections and be candidates in those same elections. That's something that's relatively unique to the United States. Um, voter identification has become a very partisan issue in the US, whereas in most countries around the world, it's pretty normal uh, for the burden to be on an independent election commission uh, to make voter identification and voter registration accessible to all eligible voters. Of course, this issue has become heavily par um, polarized and, and partisan in the United States. Uh, as many in the audience will remember, there were calls for reform after the 2000 US elections, um, including, for example, by the National Commission on Federal Election Reform, led by former presidents Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter. Um, much of this was reflected in the Help of America Vote Act, uh, passed shortly after they released their conclusions. And this did, I think, lead to some limited areas of progress. Uh, it was followed by another commission, the Carter-Baker Commission, uh, which made further recommendations. But it is clear to me from, from reading about and having heard uh, speak individuals like Jimmy Carter and Gerald Ford, um, in part because of their prior experiences in both US politics and in promoting international standards for democratic elections, that uh, there's a long list of changes um, that, that they have advocated for and that have been reasonably clear would help uh, with US uh, election security. When, when I talk about these issues, many people are surprised to learn that the US has invited international election observers since 2002, invited and had uh, international election observers since 2002, most prominently from the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. Uh, for the 2020 US elections, their preliminary post-election statement uh, congratulated election administration um, in, in the US elections and congratulated their successes in running an election during uh, such a severe part of the, of the global pandemic, but also highlighted problems. And I wanted to mention those problems that they highlight because it does set up some of the conversation that we're having today, um, including political polar polarization that eclipsed substantive debate, unequal access to voter registration, U.S. campaign finance laws that are easy to circumvent, as well as the stunning amount of money in U.S. politics, um, and partisan efforts aimed at voter suppression, including uh, what they document as 10 million voters who received automated disinformation phone calls um, aimed, I, I think, at, at suppressing their vote or, or dissuading them from turning out. Uh, their biggest criticism, however, in this preliminary report, at least in my reading of this report, was um, the effort by the incumbent president to falsely undermine the integrity of an election. These are all very hot topics. One of the challenges in approaching this topic is that the consequences of problematic elections can endure beyond that election. 
even if problems with election security were not severe enough to change who won an election, uh, for example, if the election outcome is not that close, a voter who is turned away from the polls in one election may never try to vote again. Um, on the other hand, they could also be mobilized into activism. Direct experience with fraud has been shown in other contexts, uh, for example, in Mexican elections to make some voters less likely to turn out for several subsequent election cycles. Um, and we know, as I mentioned, in other cases, experience with problematic elections can also mobilize voters and make people more likely to participate. So judging um, the sum effect of violations of election security over the long term um, can be very difficult. When we think about politically motivated efforts to undermine elections, which is something that does happen in lots of countries around the world, one of the things that is clear is that some actors attempt to undermine elections without getting caught. Um, and one can try to undermine voter confidence falsely without necessarily changing the, the real quality of the election or the real conditions on the ground. Uh, they may seek to maintain plausible deniability about the legitimacy of their actions. Um, and except under some very specific circumstances, they don't usually admit to what they're up to. Um, even when in some cases they're recorded taking actions that look very suspicious. Um, this can make this, the academic study of election security very challenging at times, right? This is an illicit behavior in many cases. Um, and, and so sometimes, um, or another thing that I wanted to bring into this conversation is that a lot of the terminology surrounding election security also becomes politicized, which is yet another challenge for those of us who are working in this space. For example, the term election integrity, which until this year was relatively benign, um, most people up until this point wanted elections with integrity, has uh, recently become pretty politicized as something that's now being used to justify uh, widespread efforts uh, to pass new legislation that's aimed at suppressing voter turnout in the future uh, with the fairly obvious objective of, of suppressing votes that are not for, for one, of the, one of the political parties. Uh, there are also a number of other violations of election security that may affect the outcome of the election, um, but may come about through administrative incompetence or other issues that are not necessarily partisan efforts to deliberately undermine democratic elections. And again, those things can also undermine voter confidence, as we'll talk about um, in this session. So as we talk about lessons from around the world uh, that may be relevant to understanding the potential for democratic backsliding in the United States, as well as improvements to and violations of election security, it is important to keep in mind that there are a number of different relevant actors at play, the government in power, the bureaucracy, including election administrators, voters, political parties, all of which may have different preferences and different ways in which they may go about either working to protect the vote or working to subvert it uh, sometimes at the same time. It's now my pleasure to introduce our panelists, each of whom are exceptional in their fields um, and bring with them not just wide ranging substantive knowledge about elections in many countries around the world, uh, but they've also been at the cutting edge of bringing rigorous research methods to policy relevant questions um, that are connected to elections and the potential for uh, uh, electoral reform and election security. You'll note, and I'll just flag this, that some of their expertise is relevant to efforts to um, engaging in reforms that are aimed at improving efforts within relatively democratic contexts, right? So making democratic elections better in some form. Uh, the panel also includes individuals with expertise in areas 
uh, that I would classify as efforts to undermine election security, but also potentially democracy, right? So we're both talking about how to improve elections within a democratic context and ways in which some of these violations of election security might not just be problematic for the election, uh, but might be problematic for democracy more generally, depending on the context. Um, so I'll, I'll now go through um, and introduce our panelists very, very, very briefly. Um, there's more extensive bios. Um, I'm in no way summarizing all of their impressive qualifications. Uh, first, uh, Catherine Casey is an associate professor of political economy at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Her research explores the role of information in enhancing political accountability. She brings extensive experience working on these issues in the particular context of Sierra Leone um, and has worked elsewhere as well. Uh, Thomas Fujiwara is an associate professor of economics at Princeton University. His research seeks to understand why elected officials fail to provide adequate services and how the design of the electoral process can influence policymaking. He's worked on elections broadly in Benin, the Philippines, and Brazil. Gianmarco Leon Ciliota is an associate professor at the University of Pampo Fabra. His research studies the determinants of voter participation and the way public policy interventions affect different dimensions of voter and politicians' behavior like turnout, vote buying, accountability, and politician selection. His work focuses on Peru, Paraguay, and Austria, among other countries. Um, and last but not least, my colleague Isla Matnock is an associate professor of political science at the University of California, Berkeley. Her research addresses the ways in which political violence and elections intersect. And she has worked on these issues in, among other places, um, uh, Colombia, Myanmar, and, and may touch also in her remarks on, on Sri Lanka. I've asked each of the panelists to open our conversation with a lesson or two from their own experiences that may be relevant to understanding US elections and the potential for reform. Um, so as, as we open things up, I'd like to invite um, uh, Kate, Professor Casey, to go first. Great. Wonderful. Thank you so much for the intro. It's fantastic to be here. So uh, I'm coming uh, from the perspective of work we've done in Sierra Leone. So this, in terms of Susan's categories, this is in how can we make democracies work better? So to really deliver uh, for citizens. And I want to focus on... Uh, on two kind of common problems. So, you know, elections around the world face a number of challenges that are fairly universal. And the two I want to focus on are how do we make sure that voters have the information they need to make good choices? And the second one is how do we get great people to run as candidates for elected office? So I think these are universal challenges and the solution is likely going to be very context specific. So things that work in Sierra Leone, very low income, West African country are probably not the solutions that are gonna work here in the United States. But the message from Sierra Leone is about how you get from the problem to the solution that works in your context. And the message I wanna I want to share is one of bold experimentation, right? And so it's trying new innovative policy reforms and then evaluating them very rigorously to see whether they're working better than what you're already doing. And so I just wanna share two examples of bold experiments that I've been involved in. Uh, with civil society and the political parties um, in Sierra Leone. And there, there's one each on each of these two, these two questions. So the first experiment I wanna share is one about this question of how do you get voters the information they need to make you know, great choices. And so a little bit of context just to start. So, so Sierra Leone is a very low income country. So a lot of voters are illiterate. They haven't had access to public education. 
And there's also in terms of media, there's just not a lot of great sources of reliable, unbiased political information. And you can think about some pretty rural farming communities um, who are going into an election who may have very little idea about how the office works, you know, what the qualifications are and who the candidates are that they're choosing, choosing between. So, so both this one and the next experiment I'm gonna talk about are in the context of, of the Sierra Leone parliament. And so the US analog you should have in your mind is the House of Representatives. So the US House, the elections are structured exactly the same way. So this question about how you get information to voters. So imagine you're in, you're in a rural village and, and people really have very little idea of what their options are. So the kind of bold solution that civil society partners wanted to test was what if we could expose voters to these very engaging debates, right? So you could go and see a debate between parliamentary candidates and really get a sense for who they are, what they stand for and what they're meant to be doing in office. So this is exactly what we did. So, so picture like a drive-in movie theater, except you're not gonna drive there, you're gonna walk there, right? So these are big public gatherings and you're watching a video of the candidates running in your area you know, debating each other on merit, right? So how do we know whether this works? Well, where these drive-in cinemas or these walk-in cinemas are happening is kind of randomly allocated. So I can look at voters who got a chance to watch the debates versus those who didn't, and I can follow their behavior right through the elections. So what we found is these debates were incredibly <laughs> successful at, at building voter knowledge, right? They gave voters a sense of what elected parliamentarians were meant to do, what the resources they had available to them and what policies they stood for. And all of this information actually changed people's voting behavior. So vote shares start to shift to higher performing candidates. And, and I wanna say a couple things about these debates. You know, Susan raised some points about, you know, sort of party politics eclipsing substantive debate and voter misinformation. So these debates are moderated by a very trusted member of civil society. They're at level, level playing field, so everybody running got equal airtime. They're focused on substance and on merit, right? So they are really talking about the nuts and bolts of government and policy and what these candidates are doing. So that's so that was one experiment on the voter side that was very successful. And the second experiment I want to share is on this question of, you know, how do you get great candidates? So for this one, the, the thing you need to know about Sierra Leone is in the status quo, the parties, they select their own candidates. So think about a party, you know, choosing all the candidates to run around the country. It's a very internal and from the outside, pretty opaque process where, you know, party leaders are, you know, nominating and appointing candidates to run. The thing that is absent in the status quo is really any space for voters. And I just wanna say, Sierra Leone here is much more representative than democracies around the world than the US system. And so what the political parties themselves are saying and both major political parties participate in this experiment was, you know, how can we create more space for voters to have a direct voice in selecting who's gonna run to be the candidate in this area? And what they did is pretty unusual is that they, they took you know, huge, large representative surveys of all registered voters. So it's not just who shows up for a primary or who has the means to access the, of the polls, it's representative opinions of all voters and they asked them, of these four potential candidates, who do you want the party to pick to be your candidate in this area? Right, and so they aggregated that information and incorporated it with their own information on these candidates to select different types of candidates. Now, how do I know the candidates are different? Because again, this is a randomized experiment. So these parties inside their own system are experimenting across different races with different ways of selecting candidates. So we can compare what the actual candidates look like once we get to the election. And what we found is actually when they created more space for voters, they were getting better candidates. In particular, they're getting candidates who had been involved in providing a lot more 
local public goods in the past. And this is something that voters in this context really care about. So you know, to sum up, I think there's these universal challenges. What exactly the solution to these challenges looks like is gonna vary a lot across countries, but the message is bold experimentation. What does that take? Well, it takes you know, acknowledging that there's a problem thinking about an innovative, bold solution, and then really be willing to test it rigorously and learn uh, from this new experience. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, next, I'm going to turn to uh, Professor Leon Siliota. Hi. Thank you very much for, for the invitation and for the gentle introduction. So as, as you mentioned, um, a large part of my research concentrates in studying the causes and consequences of, of electoral participation, right? And, and so by revealed preference, I, I think that electoral participation is a, is a key element in the functioning uh, of, of democracy and, and a key element also for boosting ele electoral integrity and trust in democratic outcomes. Most of my, my work has focused in several countries in Latin America with a particular focus in Peru. And while, as Kate mentioned, there are wide differences between the Latin American context and, and the US context, there is still some universal me uh, lessons to, to be learned um, le learned from, from comparative uh, research. So, so ju just to put uh, things in, into perspective, uh, we have to notice that the electoral participation in the US is, is low. Right in the in the 1980s and 90s, it, it was hovering around 50 percent. Since 2004, we've seen a, a relative increase, and and by the the last presidential elections, turnout reached a record high of 62 percent. Right, this is still quite low in comparative terms. In in most of Latin American or Western European countries, you see turnout rates that are somewhere around 75, 80 percent. Uh, similarly for, for some countries in, in, um, in Southern Africa. So, <clears throat> so a bunch of my, of my research ha has been on trying to understand what are, who do we uh, bring out to the, to the polls when we enact national and blanket policies uh, to try to incentivize electoral participation and what are the consequences for, for representation? Right, so there are two two big messages that that we get uh, from from these from this research. One is that you typically end up uh, with these blanket policies. You typically end up drawing to the polls voters who are usually uninterested in politics and who are sad. Therefore, getting them into the polls do not have effects on what the policies that are get enacted are but rather have implications for how they feel about the, the, the election. And, and, and this is important for when we, we're talking about election, right? So, so what are the implications of these types of policies for election integrity? First, there is habit formation in voting, right? So consistently having voters who are left out of the electoral process can generate pockets of disaffected voters who first are completely left out of the political process and hence whose policies preferences are not represented in policymaking, right? Therefore, they're not going to identify uh, with, with, with elected offices. When they decide to participate, hence, they may be more likely to be attracted by populist claims rather than candidate valence or, or programmatic politics, uh, which is the, the discussion that, that we really want to be, be having in, in any democratic process. In contrast, people who consistently participate are more likely to be part of the political discussion, acquire information, be much more, more engaged in, in, in serious conversation about programmatic policy. So, so in general, the findings from the literature leads us to think that participation in elections 
provides legitimacy to the process. The more people participate in elections, the more people I see around me participating in elections, the more we perceive them as being fair, right? So just as an example, last night I, I downloaded data uh, on electoral participation around uh, US states and how much uh, the absentee uh, voting was happening in the um, in the last elections. And, and you see that the, the facts just jump at your eyes, right? So places with higher turnout have massively higher uh, rates of usage of, of these absentee uh, ballots. Obviously, this is a correlation, uh, but but I think it, it goes in line with what we are finding in the in the literature, right? So, what policies can help increase political participation in the U.S.? There is a lot of experience with get out the vote campaigns, either led by political par parties or their campaigns, and they do help in increasing turnout. However. The, obje the objective of these, of these different types of campaigns is to generate a gap in the participation between uh, voters from different parties. So, so no, that, that doesn't contribute in increasing uh, the legitimacy in, in, in elections, right? Similarly, enfranchisement is helpful for widening representation, but, but again, here we are focusing on a specific set of voters, right? In the US, clearly mandating to vote, like we've done in, in many Latin American countries and some European countries, is a no-go. But there are some hard and soft policies that can re be relatively easy to implement. And he here, I, I would agree with Kate that we need to, to start experimenting in what works in, in, and what doesn't, and, and the decentralized organization of elections in the US helps, right? So some ideas uh, just to trigger the discussion, Automatic registration, which has been implemented in, in, in several U.S. states, voting on a Sunday, uh, so, stuff that is that is really really easy to implement, right? Uh, alternatively, what we see in some countries is that even without the mandate to vote, turnout is around 80, 85 percent, right? And, and this is mostly because people perceive voting as a citizen duty. Uh, so nonpartisan campaign in this direction can also uh, be be really helpful. So I, I'll just leave it there to. And we'll keep discussing later. Thank you. Great. So now let's turn to uh, Professor Fujiwara. Uh, uh, thanks to everyone at Siga, the Goldman School, and um, Berkeley for the opportunity to talk here. Uh, so I'd like to start by sharing some lessons from Brazil, so the world's fifth largest democracy, and in particular, how Brazil has quite successfully administered its elections using electronic voting devices for over 20 years. And it has done so without any credible evidence of fraud and broad trust and support from the elector. So the Brazilian electronic voting system is popular with you no know, Brazilian voters since it's easier to use than the previous used paper ballots. And it also allow election results to arrive quickly. Right? So usually polls on election day close at 5 p.m. And in the same evening, the same night, the full results from almost 120 million uh, votes cast are made public, which is an important part of uh, you know, electoral integrity because it's in dispute between polls closing and uh, actual election results not being clear to the uh, to, to everyone that a lot of threats to you know, electoral integrity or even uh, democ democracy can occur. Okay. So uh, the, the transition from paper ballots to electronic voting in Brazil happened in the 90s, and it was successful in large part because Brazil actually already differed from the US in some dimensions. So Brazil had a centralized national electoral authority. They had a lot of power to oversee and even coordinate or even actually tell what to do to the state level electoral authorities, right? 
And this, the whole electoral authority system at the state and national level, it is part of the judiciary branch, which is, you know, by definition, independent from the executive and the legislatures. And that has been historically trusted and perceived as independent by the, by the population, right? More so than most uh, uh, state uh, institutions, right? And so on top of that, the Brazilian electoral authority also made a clear effort to have transparency regarding the voting process. Uh, election data is made publicly available in Brazil in a way that's actually much easier for you know, the average person to access data on elections than it is in the United States. And procedural documents are made public, all in a kind of centralized place. So the average Brazilian can actually go to the electoral authority website and, and collect all sorts of information that it's actually more difficult even as a researcher to find in the US, right? Um, another interesting lesson is that, that while the electronic voting devices in Brazil, they are what we call direct record, which means the vote telling process happens without anyone actually handling pieces of paper. The electronic voting devices, they do produce ballot level printout of results. So for each ballot, which, you know, the votes of say 200 to 500 people, it will print out what are the results of people that voted right out when the polling station closes. So that creates a paper trail that can be used to audit resu results and could address, you know, potential issues regarding say a cyber attack on a central vote tallying system. Uh, I mean, there are also some downsides to the Brazilian system, which are maybe not inherent to the system, but it, it is the way uh, the Brazil has implemented this, has these downsides. The first is that it does not allow absentee or mail voting. A, a voter can only cast her vote in the police station she is registered to vote, right? Uh, currently, the country is rolling out biometric vote information via fingerprints, which also has some or can have some negative effects on voter registration and turnout, since it requires you know every single voter to you know, re-register to vote and provide their fingerprint to the uh, uh, authorities, right? These issues, however, they're counterbalanced by a system of mandatory voting, much like Gianmarco uh, uh, talked about before me, and by having elections on the Sundays, which are kind of clearly a day set out for everybody to go vote, right? Uh, and lastly, just to kind of put things in context and compare to the United States, uh, uh, I should give you some context that since Brazil re redemocratization in the 80s, right, the major parties and the leading presidential candidates, they, ha they have been committed to respecting electoral results. So I think Brazil sort of leveraged a system where you know, the main political actors were committed to respecting electoral results. There was a, a central uh, independent electoral authority, right? And now these things are, are changing. Right? The current president, Jair Bolsonaro, he has been making claims of uh, electoral fraud without producing any evidence whatsoever to back it up. Uh, the claims had little consequence in last year municipal election, but you know Brazil is actually about to face probably its biggest threat in, in, in when it comes to electoral integrity in when it comes uh, the federal elections next year. So it, I think there's interest parallels to observe how it will be handled there and how the U.S. can learn to, to handle things uh, here. Thank you. Isla, um, please go ahead, Professor Mantna. Thanks uh, for having me and um, thanks so much uh, for organizing on this topic. Um, so while there are many different challenges to electoral security, I'm gonna talk about violence around elections, specifically starting with ties between politicians and armed groups. Um, at times, politicians and armed groups have become really closely linked. My cross-country case-based uh, cross case research um, with Paul Staniland has shown that ties between politicians and armed groups are not unusual. Uh, most armed groups actually do engage in some type of electoral participation, whether supporting particular candidates <clears throat> or coercing others. 
And uh, many politicians are also open to this type of influence. So um, my cross-national data tracking the most overt types of these links shows that these ties between politicians and armed groups often become endemic in really different contexts. So different levels of democracy, different levels of development, rather than focusing in on one case for this particular type of research, we've really looked across um, a set of cases and I've collected data across a set of cases. I think these links form between politicians and armed groups because simply put, they can benefit both of them. So armed groups um, can use ties to tilt outcomes towards positions that match their own political aims and agendas, as well as to recruit, organize and attack more openly um, with sympathetic politicians in office. Politicians though also can use this tool in much the same way that they use other types of violence, one-sided repression, communal, communal violence, um, the illegal activity can mobilize some of their most enthusiastic supporters, um, but it can also deter legal activities. So intimidating politicians to do less campaigning and legislating, dissuade citizens from voting or supporting their preferred candidates and blocking civil servants from trying to do their jobs. Um, so these ties between armed groups and politicians have the potential to undermine democracy. And we've been talking about them increasingly uh, in the media recently. I think, uh, you know, in terms of suggestions going forward, once politicians become tied to armed groups, separation is not always so simple. Um, our work suggests that there are a few things to do beyond law enforcement that rely really on civil society and citizens. So first, um, monitoring and identifying these ties throughout the electoral cycle is really crucial. Government officials, but also journalists, analysts, academics can help do this. The important thing here is that many of the links between politicians and armed actors are covert. And even when the ties are out in the open, the specific language often allows politicians to deny them if pressured. This occurs across the cases that we look at. Calling them out and identifying patterns can help mobilize action. So once identified, how do we hold um, politicians or armed actors accountable? Law enforcement, of course, has a crucial role in this. The police and the judicial systems um, consistent response keeps armed groups reined in based on our work in the US and other contexts. However, we're a little bit concerned that politicians can at times push for uneven policing and sometimes law enforcement bias and even open sympathies can actually be part of this violence. Beyond law enforcement, most of the ties to politicians also require a different approach because they're often not verifiably illegal, even if patterns and other evidence exists. So holding politicians accountable for their ties to armed groups can, can involve things like political processes such as sanctions or impeachment, funding cuts by campaign donors, social media or other media companies enforcing policies about language, and ultimately disapproval expressed by voters, um, by constituents. Um, so recently Martha Crenshaw, um, drawing on her decades of research on homegrown terrorism wrote that this break really happens when, quote, the community that they claim to re represent rejects them, that is rejects violence. And that seems to be really crucial here too. So I would say that in terms of the, the spectrum, this is more on the, how do we avoid some of the really negative outcomes that we see in other places, but we have seen sort of broad-based efforts to reject violence in different contexts. So even though our work shows that these, that many elections feature violence and that because there are these benefits involved, these cycles can be really hard to break. I am hopeful um, that we may find some solutions uh, going forward. So I'll leave it there and look forward to the rest of the conversation. Wonderful. Uh, that 
there's so many interesting things here. Um, Isla, I think the, the, the questions that you're raising are really fundamental right now um, and, and do connect to these ways in which um, the US is experiencing things that um, it hasn't experienced for a little while. Um, and, and so therefore we have this need to draw on examples from other contexts, uh, highlighting the conversation we're having today. Um, the next question I'd like to follow up with is just um, to ask our panelists um, to perhaps join some of our audience members in thinking about um, why it's a little bit difficult to compare the U.S. to other countries and to think about both uh, similarities and uh, perhaps differences uh, between the cases that you're familiar with. So in what ways um, should we think about um, surprising similarities between the U.S. and other places and in which ways should we think about differences that are maybe really important to emphasize ways in which the U.S. just isn't like other countries um, and, and doesn't have good um, comparisons that we should should be making to, to other cases. Um, let's see, I'll ask uh, uh, Professor Casey to go first. Great. Well, since I'm, you know, talking about uh, Sierra Leone, which is, you know, uh, very low income West African country. I think you, you can think of a lot of differences that, you know, some are surprising, some are not, but what I wanna talk about is the similarities. So Zero uh, has a fairly stable two party system like the US. So the two parties that are the major parties now are the same parties that were formed around independence um, in the 1960s. And one thing I think is interesting is because there, there are affiliations, sort of regional sorting. So there's affiliations, there's kind of two major ethnic groups and, and two major political parties and they're, one is in the North and one's in the South. So they're it's pretty stable, kind of, they each have sort of equal size support. Um, but what this means, this geographic sorting is that when you come down, so presidential elections are super competitive, right? Because each party has kind of equal shares. When you go to the sub-national level, like thinking about, you know, the U.S. House of Representatives, you get these very kind of homogenous local districts, right? And what does that mean? That means like local elections are a landslide for one party or the other. So for example, I, I'm at Stanford, it's in Palo Alto. So if you think about our house districts, you go to the general election, the, whoever the Democratic candidate is, almost doesn't even matter who that person is, they're going to the 75% of the vote versus 25% of the vote for the Republican candidate, right? That's a 50 percentage point white spread. And that just happens again and again and again, right? Same thing in Sierra Leone. So that's pretty much, Palo Alto would be pretty much a, the median distribution in terms of how, how uncompetitive a local election is. And so, you know, there's also, there, there's two political scientists, um, Jim Snyder and Shigeo Horano wrote this beautiful book on U.S., U.S. primaries, but this is one of the things they were pointing to is that it's not just Palo Alto. Like if you look at all U.S. House elections over the last 70 years, a majority of them were decided by more than a 15 percentage point spread, right? That is a landslide, right? So most of the U.S. House elections anyway, are also very, very lopsided. And so this kind of ties back to like why I wanted to talk about that second experiment on how you select candidates, because in a place like Palo Alto, the general election doesn't really matter, right? You, you know, the Democratic candidate's gonna win. So the question is, who is the Democratic candidate and how is that person selected, right? And, you know, who had a say, who turned out, who participated? And I think that's where, you know, that's why it's really important to think about who's putting themselves forward and who's who's participating in that process of, of winnowing that group of potential candidates down. And I just want to say, so one surprising difference, and this comes back to Gianmarco's point, and as a shout out to voters in Sierra Leone, turnout is not mandatory in the Sierra Leone. The last two general elections, it was 84, 87% turnout. So that's, you know, not mandatory, and it's just a phenomenal level of voter participation. 
That is truly impressive. Um, let's see, uh, Professor Leon Siliota, do you want to get in on this? Yeah, sure. So one thing that, that um, really got me thinking about the similarities between Latin America and, uh, and the US is the, the use of, of political trials, right? So, so uh, I mean, uh, after the, the, the last couple of impeachments of, of, of former President Trump, um, political trials are useful instruments for democracy to punish misconduct by, by elected officials outside election periods, right? We, we typically have very little uh, tools are at our hands outside election uh, periods to, to punish uh, politicians, right? And <clears throat> however, these institutional safeguards at times can be a double-edged sword, right? And th this brings me back uh, to, to a, a project I was working recently uh, in Peru where there are recall elections for, for mayors around the country and they, they happen very often. The problem here is that there are, there is a fine line when you are trying to punish an elected official for having misconduct and when you're using these institutional tools for political purposes. What, what, I, what I found in, in, that, in that project in Peru is that when potential candidates perceive that, that an, a political trial is used in a, in a, with political motives, that ends up deterring potentially very good candidates. Basically, people who are thinking about entering politics see that, that they may be uh, kicked out because of, of political motivations, and they say, well, I may as well stay in my well-paid private sector position, right? So, so what, what, what's, a, what's a parallel here? When you, when you have such often happening uh, impeachments like, like what we've seen lately, and and when you have voting uh, in this case in the in the house and in the senate completely split against party lines this completely undermines the objectives of these political trials in in the in the sense that one of the benefits of having the, the, these discussions in, in public is airing some potential facts that that may document uh, wrongdoing by elected officials once the voting in the House and in the Senate is completely split along party lines, this, this undermines the credibility of, of, of these, these facts and completely erases the potential usefulness of these, uh, of these political uh, trials, right? And, and, and this can have potential um, like downward effects on, on, on the selection of people who decides to, to enter uh, the political race at different stages. I think the quality of candidates is a really interesting theme that's coming out of some of these reforms. Um, Professor Matnock, uh, will you jump in on this question too? Sure, yeah. I was also thinking about sort of the response um, to these different types of threats and especially thinking about um, electoral violence. And so picking up on some of um, Gianmarco's uh, comments just now, you know, thinking about um, there's a wide range of what we think the government will do in response to this. It, at times, the political violence is so deeply ingrained and linked to 
um, the judicial sector, the policing sector, that there's really no hope in some countries that there will be sort of any type of response from um, those bodies. And in other cases, there's much more hope. And I think the U.S. Uh, has shifted between um, those different opinions over the course of, of recent events. And so, you know, there's there are cases that look a lot more like the U.S., like um, there's an incident with um, para, uh, parapolitics in Colombia, where um, there were links between paramilitaries and politicians in the legislature. And there were investigations, there were court cases brought about the collusion um, between these politicians and, uh, and the paramilitaries. Um, but there were also important roles played by politicians who tried to pass more legislation to sort of sanction this. It was sometimes blocked but also through activists. Um, so there were widespread um, protests. Um, lots of different organizations wrote about this. And then also um, there were journalists and others who actually uncovered some of these links. Samana Magazine was one of those that was sort of responsible for doing a lot of this work. So I think uh, in these cases, we can sort of see this like universe of responses. It's not clear that all of those might exactly apply to the US, um, but it certainly fits somewhere between the spectrum of like places where the government is completely involved in this type of violence and, and places where it's like not at all involved. Um, and so thinking about sort of the most effective response to it um, is, is likely um, going to fit somewhere in the middle and, and encompasses some of these reactions and responses that we've seen in other cases. Oh, great, thank you. And then uh... Professor Fujiwara, will you jump in a little bit here? Uh, yes. So, so I think what I'll say, echo a little bit what uh, uh, John Marco also said is, I think in, so what like voters I think in any country expect a little bit is, is that at some point there's some independent authority who make a call on what results are. So right. So there's like in, in, in the United States, there's, there's, the, there's independent or the, the institution that plays this role would be the judiciary, would be courts, right? And 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 if if it gets there, it will be eventually the, the Supreme Court. I was remember from the 2011, right? And, and I think that's a good example because it, it was clear only in, in 2000 there was a ruling, and then one candidate said, "Okay, that's the ruling, right?" Al Gore said, right, that, "That's it, right? I'll concede, right?" So, and I think I think here are where like two things that are perhaps a little different in the United States from other countries is is that the judiciary is not perceived by, I think, big part of the population with good reason as independent, right? Because judge, federal judges are, are appointed by the federal government and because, you know, state judges are appointed by state governments because people look at the Supreme Court and they, they can clearly attach each judge to a particular party, right? You uh, you create the system where it's sort of, it, 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 you know, like uh, uh, the population expects and then a kind of independent referee to, to, to come and, and call things one way or the other, which is kind of difficult. So going back a bit to the example in Brazil, I think that's a country that can't handle this well because, because the electoral authority is part of the judiciary and they're not appointed by particular parties, they can sort of play this role of being perceived at least by the population as a non-political actor. And not only that, I think they, they navigate this in, in ways that are complicated, like going back to the political trials that, that Jean-Marco said, like say, they are responsible to say, make claims about, does the sitting president broke electoral rule by say, taking off the book campaign donations, right? And I think a lot of times they shy away from making uh, rulings there because they know what, the moment they step in, they'll be perceived as political. So it's, it's a very difficult trade-off people have to navigate, right? And I think, I think the United States has this particularity that, they, that kind of permeates it is that once 
the judiciary is perceived as also as political and partisan. It's hard to, for the population to see, you know, uh, uh, their decisions as kind of being independent, right? But uh, kind of uh, as a kind of fair referee calling which way the election went. I think I'm going to circle back in a second to um, a question that's very much related to what you were just talking about. But um, for now, I do want to think um, about a question that's been on my mind as we've prepared for this panel, which is that uh, when we talk about the potential uh, for reform in the US, if you're just reading public commentary and whatnot, uh, there's a lot of pessimism, right? There's a lot of a, a sense that um, it's hard to get uh, multiple political parties on board. Um, Kate, one of the things I was struck by in your comments was just that all of the parties are willing to participate in these efforts to make uh, the process more inclusive for voters. Um, and that was true across apparently the, the entire political spectrum, right? Um, that just seems to be not the case right now in the United States. And so um, I wanted to give our panelists a chance to say um, a word or two about whether um, there, there is anything from their experiences that um, suggest ways in which countries can move from intense polarization, perhaps even in post-Civil War contexts, um, to moments in, in which there's a willingness to adopt reforms and to move towards uh, improvements in electoral processes. Um, Isla, or sorry, Professor Matnock, could you please go first? Sure, um, thank you. So I, I'm afraid I'm going to be relatively pessimistic on this front in terms of electoral violence. I think um, there's really this possibility of getting very stuck uh, in these cycles. And so, um, you know, I've, I've mentioned some of the ways in which we might get out. And I think, uh, you know, a country that, it, that is in this cycle might get out of it. Um, but I think there is this big question about who um, politicians uh, or who can, who can hold politicians accountable in these contexts where they're really acting outside of the system, um, whether it's through something like electoral fraud or electoral violence, which happens to be what I study. There are super interesting other, you know, political science works on this that suggests that the, you know, people who are closest to those who are using these tactics themselves, so political allies or advisors, might be most in the position to like call out or sanction this, both because um, others will be most persuaded by their messaging because it's surprising, right? It's coming from the people who are closest and also um, because it, it sort of uh, signals that they have the same interests, um, but they're willing to use a different uh, mechanism. That said, I think that there are cases in which political violence is used, especially by politicians, because it's benefiting them, right? And so it's in some way that we need to break the cycle of benefits from these mechanisms, whether it's fraud or violence or something else in these contexts. And I think that can be hard to do. I do study um, post-conflict elections, and I think there are ways in which that you can sort of shock the cycle in a way that resets the equilibrium. Uh, and then you have sort of a, a new um, playing field that eventually improves gradually. But I think these gradual uh, institutional changes is something that we actually have less of an idea about how they occur um, in some of these contexts in a way that that's really positive. So I would say I'm on the pessimistic end of the spectrum, but I'm hoping my colleagues um, have other suggestions that are, that are more optimistic. <laughs> Uh, well, we can always hope. Uh, thank you, uh, Professor Leon. Uh, 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 sorry, <laughs> no I, <worries. laughs> I was trying to think about my next question. Um, so, so, so let me uh, let me put the the more optimistic uh, side here. So, once and again, when when we've seen um, 
big big packages of electoral reform trying to get passed uh, in, in Latin America, they have been blocked by national forces, right? So 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 in general, get getting past big reforms to, to electoral systems is hard. One advantage that the U.S. has with a, with a very, very decentralized organization of elections is that it allows for what Kate was saying earlier, right? It, it allows for bold experimentation. And we know that once one thing works, it is much easier to push it higher ups in, 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 the, in the political discussion, right? So, so, so that, that's one thing that I would highlight that, that, that we should push local administrators to try to dig deep and come up with some some creative uh, solutions that can be scaled up uh, to, to national policies. Great. Um, let's see, uh, Thomas. I think on a more optimistic take is this, because the United States has this decentralized administration, there's much more room for the, the bold experimentation. And, and one thing, uh, one aspect I think in the, in the pessimist view that I think is people are overestimating is that it uh, that you know how certain it is that each reform will kind of have the effect that the, the the people pushing for the reform are taking. So there's a lot of unintended consequences in these reforms, right? So uh, kind of to give a current example, let's say there's a in some state the Republican Party is pushing to curb say mayo voting because they think that will help them in elections. But that's actually a very uncertain thing. You know, they're probably basing on the on something that happened in this last election during a pandemic, right? It's not obvious it will, will happen. Uh, so, like, uh, I wouldn't say take a bet that every time that you curb mayo voting, that increases the Republican vote share, right? But in a sense, I think is as states will do these things, some reforms, even if they are kind of say being done with the intent of kind of tilting things to one, one party, it may kind of backfire by not happening. So then there'll be kind of this back and forth, right? So there'll be it's uh, 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 there'll be room for improvement, right? Especially like you know uh, uh, to, to returning things up for the way they uh, they they were. Maybe some changes will kind of stuck around because voters like it. it. It's actually you know I think there's a part of an optimistic. It's it's not as easy to kind of you know tinker with electoral administration to get the the, the uh, uh, things to to to, to go. Uh, the, to kind of tilt the scales in the direction of one party versus the other, right? They, in, I guess in the research from all of all the other panelists here, you can see there's a lot of kind of unintended consequences, things that kind of happen the way you don't quite expect it exactly to happen. Uh, there's something very interesting there, which is one of my favorite article titles um, that has nothing to do with this. It's called Driving with the Rearview Mirror. Um, and a lot of times, because there's so many ways to undermine elections and so many ways to try to counter those methods of undermining elections, reforms are aimed at the problems of the last cycle, um, not attempting to try to guard against uh, what are the most likely problems in the future cycle. And if you're really uh, intense, much like a burglar or something like that, if you're really intent on getting into the house, um, you might not go for the method of getting into the house that the that you know the person just set up security for, right? You might come up with a new method. And so uh, there are some very interesting aspects to this. Um, Kate, did you wanna follow up on this too? Yeah, yeah, I will. So, um, I mean, I think uh, I think the kinds of things that the parties and civil society have been doing in Sierra Leone are, are kind of inherently an optimistic example, but I wanted to, like some pragmatic aspects of this kind of idea of experimentation is what you, you don't have to 
roll out a national reform that changes everything, right? I think John Marco talked about this. So you can start small, start with a pilot. This is really inherent to learning, right? You, you need to try some things and compare it to others. So you can also, when you're thinking about a pilot, you also, you need to think about what are the strategic considerations of the people that need to participate, right? So, so let me just give you, coming back to my two experiments, sort of pragmatic ways to think about it. So when you think about the debates between candidates that are, you know, then broadcast to all these voters, once you have one candidate signed up and a neutral party committed to broadcasting that candidate's perspective, the other candidate, the cost of opting out now becomes really huge, right? So now if I don't participate, my rival is going to get all of this free campaign advertising, right? So maybe particularly like an incumbent didn't want to show up right away, but then geez, if the challenger is going to be broadcast to thousands of voters, at like, you know, basically no cost for that candidate, I'm not going to miss this out. And then you have this coordination where you can kind of corral everybody in, right? So that's kind of strategic considerations facing candidates on the campaign trail. And this idea of, of piloting, so that experiment where we were, the, the parties themselves were experimenting in how to select candidates, that did not roll out across all races at one go, right? So a very first important step. So first of all, we worked with um, Political Parties Registration Commission, which again, this is, this is part of the government that is the regulator of parties. So again, it's a nonpartisan platform. But the first thing they said is, you know, we only have limited budget. So which races would you be even willing to experiment with this new selection mechanism in, right? So then the party leaders themselves can hive off races that you know are too contentious, too politically sensitive, where they are not ready to try something new. And they can pick a set of races where they are willing to experiment. And then you know, the research team can come in and randomize which of those can be the new ones, which are gonna be the status quo, right? So it's kind of this idea of you know, what, are, what are people's strategic incentives to try something new? And when you're starting things from a pilot and scaling them up, you can make these strategic accommodations and compromises that is then sort of incentive compatible for everybody to participate in it. I really like that point. I think that's um, a very social scientist uh, uh, sort of contribution, but I think it's important to think about in this context and in this conversation. Um, I, I wanted to follow up on these issues um, associated with sort of trust and neutrality um, and polarization. Uh, there, these are issues that have come up in other countries. I remember when I was um, uh, election observer in Venezuela in 2004, um, I, we were basically being timed outside of polling stations. And if we talked to one, one voter for 30 seconds longer than, you know, who was wearing a partisan color than another voter, uh, you know, at one point we almost got arrested for, for some slight difference in, in the time we were spent talking to different voters. And these things get to a point where nobody trusts anybody. Uh, so sometimes international observers are put forward as, as a sort of neutral judge of, of the quality of elections. Um, we've also brought up independent election commissions as a potentially important actor. Several of you have mentioned this idea of just sort of the trusted um, organization from civil society or something like that. And I wondered if you could just say a bit more about who these actors are in the context in which you've worked, who is trusted, who is legitimate, um, and when there are issues with voter confidence in the electoral process, um, can that be addressed in any way that, that would be useful for folks to hear about um, in relation to the US elections? Uh, let's see, Isla, go ahead. Great, um, so I'll start with just a, a couple of comments about this. I think, um, you know, I've mentioned that uh, there is sort of this, these interesting political science studies about how people can be most persuaded by, by messengers with whom they share common values, right? So there is a reason why parties send their own observers to, to monitor elections. And it's not just 
because if things go wrong, they want to have been there, but also because if things go right, they want to, to sort of be the people saying, yes, like this was a legitimate election, right? And so I think there is sort of this like, especially on violence, there is this question about getting the people who are closest to um, the, the uh, particular audience that you're targeting to reject uh, violence, to reject electoral violence, right? Those are the most, those seem to be the most trusted sources um, based on sort of like de-radicalization literature and, and um, preventing the use of violence. In electoral context in general, I wanted to actually bring up the point that you just mentioned, Susan, but specifically with, with relation to electoral violence, which is that um, there have been some really interesting studies, um, which you know well, um, but perhaps others don't, about um, electoral violence actually being displaced by having international monitors. So that in some contexts, international monitors can actually provide uh, you know, a check on these um, elections. And so you actually are getting a displacement of violence as a strategy. And I think it's important to think about like what violence is doing, what a lot of these other disruption strategies are doing, right? Fundamentally, they're about political exclusion, whether it's like in the initial phases where you're trying to get people not to participate in the electoral cycle, or whether it's in the later phases where you're trying to get a change in um, the outcome in terms of who actually comes into power. And so having this, you know, um, observation, this third party observation can be really useful. Now, that said, in some contexts, including in the U.S., only certain parties really trust particular outside actors as being neutral. Um, we've seen some cool survey work on this um, in recent years, both in the US and Tunisia um, by people like Sarah Bush and Lauren Prather. And so I think there's really great evidence that this can at times work and it can displace violence, um, but who the trustworthy sources are for this outside intervention or this outside of observation specifically, um, you know, I think might vary by context and is something we would need to um, assess in each in each election. Thomas, go ahead. Yes. Uh, yeah. So, so on, on this issue of like um, uh, building uh, trust and 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 our view of neutrality, I think we uh, we could talk a lot about like you know like specific steps an electoral authority can do to make it transparent, to make it clear, to make it like the the you know, the ballots and the, the 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 envelopes all make look trustworthy, but in I think there's like a natural limitation where at some point, you know, like, like you know, the, the like you know, the uh, outside forces, kind of outside the entities, have to to tell people these are these are uh, um, valid results. And I think then it really relies, say, say, on the media, on the media being perceived as independent and telling this, this were the results that happened. This is like is is is, is or mm -hmm. this was a free and fair election. And I think there's another. Uh, entity we don't talk about it but it's the politicians themselves I like I think a lot of like what make a functioning democracy works is a system where the parties on their own will concede and always kind of say when they lose they say this is what I lost like my 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 challenger my opponent won in a free uh, and, and fair place so in a way it's kind of easier said than done right I can say here well we should have an independent media that kind of makes this uh, this work for us we should have politicians and parties that are well behaved but I think as, as actors, you know, everybody's a political actor to some extent. I think it's important to always push on that, you know, let's say, say of the disagreements when you see, you know, when you see different candidates, different parties taking some different positions, you know, like, you know, you can agree, disagree. But I think everyone as voters, as donors, as, as civil society, members, we should understand like when somebody makes statements that kind of crosses the line into, you know, uh, uh, undermining election, they're really crossing a line that is very different from others, right? It's something they you know kind of... Uh, can undermine the democracy, right? So let's say, 
uh, I think a lot of what makes uh, these things work in other countries is that parties are kind of able to push out the, the candidates or its members that actually would, would be willing to make these claims. I don't say when one candidate loses, he can say, oh, I didn't win fair and fairly, but maybe his other members of his party said, no, like you have to concede because, you know, next year will be, next election will be uh, uh, someone else and we want this system to keep running the way it is. So I think there's a, a lot of that, like is just policing and punishing the, the people to try to deviate from uh, uh, making unfounded claims that the elections that are free and fair are not free and fair. Yeah. Um, Thomas, yesterday in our planning meeting, you mentioned um, one way in which the Brazilian government has increased trust in the uh, electronic voting systems in Brazil. Um, and, and you mentioned the hacker competition. Will you tell us a little bit more about that? I, I guess. Oh, yes. So, so, the, so the Brazilian uh, electorate, they, they also, they, they try to make all these steps to make the, 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 the electronic devices uh, uh, perceive as trustworthy. So one kind of clever thing they did is they, they hold an yearly kind of hacker competition. So they say like, we'll give an award to the person who comes up with the most effective way to hack into the machines, right? And and I think, and then I think that creates kind of trust in the thing. A, because, you know, they can, they can show we're, we're actually, you know, asking people to do their best job to, to, to undermine security so they can defend it. And also because the winners uh, of, of these hacking competitions, they are so convoluted and so kind of, they come up with things that are so complex to do that it, it almost I say, well, it would be impossible to do, right? So usually it involves somebody say, oh, I'm going to hook up a cable to the device, which obviously, you know, the, the election workers would see or say, oh, I'm going to kind of set up a big radio that has to be within, you know, half a yard from the polling <laughs> device, and then I'll interfere with the, the so it's, it's, I think the, 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 the kind of, it, it also shows like how hard it, it, it would be to, to, to kind of actually engage in this, right? The, the, the system is very, right? It's not a design in a safe way, right? It doesn't, right? It's, yeah. It's, it's not like, like every device is linked to the internet and somebody can hack it. It's actually much more complex and it involves, you know. Very complex ways of going about it. I think that these ways of establishing confidence are really, really important. And one of the things um, that several of you have highlighted in your comments is just all of the ways in which um, uh, creating doubt and sowing doubts about these more reliable actors can be very destructive to um, democratic elections and to election security. So I think that's another theme that's coming out of this. Um, Jean-Marco? Yeah, I, I just want to make a, a, a quick comment going back to the to the original point that that, that I made uh, about turnout being one important determinant of, of of trust in in elections, right, and, and generating voting confidence. So I was mentioning that that there is some uh, some time persistence within individual, right? When you vote one time, you're likely to to vote uh, one time uh, again. The, the second dimension of correlation is in the cross-section, right? When you, when you see more people around you doing something, you're also, you, you think about it uh, much more carefully, right? And, and, we, and we, see, we see these uh, with, with vaccines right now, right? The, the, the numbers on, of people who, who were willing to, to receive a vaccine has gone in the complete opposite trend as as the way vaccination ha, has moved right and this this is uh as some some, some people say that that this is mostly uh, due to the fact that once you know something who has taken up uh the, the this vaccine i'm more likely to trust it similarly with, with elections right when, when you see that more people are are going to vote that implies that they trust the system 
when more people vote, that, that transmits uh, much more uh, trust. Um, let's see, Kate, you wanted to jump in on this too? Yeah, I, I just wanted to just close out just by sharing a, a story uh, about Sierra Leone. So um, Sierra Leone was involved in a very brutal civil war that ended in 2002. And, and given what I, some of the background I gave you about, you know, very intense two-party rivalry and competition, so there's those first elections after the war was over were like extremely high stakes election. So the story I want to tell is just one about the, the power of individual leadership and particularly um, the head of the newly formed National Electoral Commission again, which is, which is an independent nonpartisan government agency that oversees elections in Sierra Leone. Uh, the first director of that was uh, Dr. Christiana Thorpe. So I mean, she's just an amazing person in a lot of ways. She's, she's worked in, in human rights, advocating for girls education, but she's also a former nun and just her substance and her reputation and her leadership style, I think was just incredible for overseeing those first very contentious, very high stakes elections. And, and, and just a sense of like some of her accomplishments was there were, you know, there were different local elections that would be contested, some with the ruling party, some with the opposition party. And she was seen as a fair arbiter and, you know, making calls and, you know, for, for the right outcome, regardless of which party was contesting. And just as a sign of her accomplishment, like there's peaceful transitions of power, actually even beyond her multiple transitions of power between the ruling party and the opposition, even at the presidential level since uh, since the end of the war, which is actually very exceptional, uh, at least in the neighborhood of sub-Saharan Africa. So, you know, it's a story. It's not it's not an experiment, but it's um, I think there's a lot of potential for for people's trust in a particular leader and their reputation and the, the approach they bring to the office that they have that can that can really do can really do a lot in terms of building trust and legitimacy in the system. I think um, that's that's very much interesting um, and it's curious for me to think about um, just from what I know of US elections just who who might be able to play that role um, in the context of the US elections. We did get a question um, from from the audience about whether uh, this is from Michael Campos uh, about whether international election monitoring should be used now more than ever when questioning election security um, and whether it should focus less on their assessment uh, with an eye towards an international audience for that assessment and more towards um, the domestic population. That does seem to be like a question that um, uh, is two-sided. Sure, the international election observers can target their uh, assessment towards domestic audiences, but that doesn't mean that they'll listen. And so this notion of sort of credible actors and thinking through, uh, you know, who uh, who U.S. audiences, who audiences around the world, when um, you're in a political context in which mistrust has grown, uh, distrust has grown uh, very high, um, how can you reestablish trusted sources of information? And I do think um, uh, I want to throw out here uh, at the risk of uh, throwing our panelists off off guard a little bit. Uh, one of the other questions that we got from the audience, which is from uh, Ben Greenberg from uh, Vote Shield, um, and the question is uh, that disinformation around election fraud, even when no evidence exists, is a relevant issue for the U.S. and other countries. How can governments maintain public trust when their legitimacy is threatened by an unprecedented media ecosystem? And so just for, if I can just expand slightly on the question um, and say that I, I know that the current media environment is something that is also affecting elections in a lot of other countries around the world. Um, there's you know, micro-targeting of disinformation from abroad. There is 
uh, efforts to sort of splinter and discredit the media. A lot of the things that are happening in the US are happening in other countries as well, um, uh, including this issue raised by, by ben, ben Greenberg about, about di disinformation around election fraud, which can of course come from domestic sources or international sources. And so um, the, the, is a follow-up question on this question of trust um, but specifically related to the, the media ecosystem. So I don't if any of you want to chime in on this or um, if, I'm, if I'm allowed to uh, see if, um, if any of you want to jump in. Because it's unprecedented, I think yeah. you know, social science is still kind of grappling with like, what is, is, is like how, like how mm. this is different and how to deal with that. And I, I think especially the, the how, how how to kind of push back on this, like say, like, so what is the best way to fight, you know, the spread of disinformation online, right? Should be mm -hmm. like, you know, use spread fact checking back to people online. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, can, can we kind of rely entirely on, on the traditional media to kind of say, no, the things that we know are circulating in, in your in social media groups uh, are, are, are false, right? But mm -hmm. I, I I think because it's new, it's, we're still kind of grappling a lot with, uh, with uh, how to deal with this, right? Uh, I'll, I'll chime in and say, you know, one of the very earliest uh, reports from an international observer group that I've, that I've located is from the 60s, an observation mission by the Amer Organization for American States, I believe it was in the Dominican Republic, um, includes basically a complaint about a disinformation effort, that there was a rampant rumor going around that these ballot envelopes that voters had to open to sort of access their ballot um, contained uh, a, a flammable powder so that they would like explode in, in their face. And this is in the 60s, right? This is, um, uh, and it was apparently disinformation in, in a rumor as far as, as the report could tell. So in some ways, some of these trends might be um, uh, just more prevalent in terms of the damage that disinformation can do. So this was, you know, the thing I'm talking about in the Dominican Republic was just an isolated incident. Um, but but in some ways, maybe the, the new thing is is um, how expansive it is and how many people it's influencing. Isla, um, maybe you can go. Yeah, I was just gonna I was just gonna say that I do think there is a particularly important role for the media in a lot of these electoral processes and thinking about election violence in particular. Um, you know, these ties between politicians and armed groups, as I mentioned, and others have written, um, you know, in the U.S. context, for example, that these are often left. Uh, so, so Paul Standalin and I are, are in our work, we define these as being either overt or covert links. And often both politicians and armed groups want to keep them covert. And then also in terms of like whether it's direct or indirect support. So indirect support might be something like targeting a particular politician's opponent, right? Um, versus like actively supporting that politician by giving them funds or something. So if you have indirect participation and it's covert, um, the only way to find this is by producing more information, right? And so there are certainly government structures that sometimes investigate this, but we've also seen a lot of these cases around the world be identified um, through the media. So there is now this like unprecedented um, media ecosystem, as, as the questioner says, but um, there is also this really important role for the media to play in many cases in sort of identifying some of these links um, you know, and, and actually bringing them to light. And so it's kind of a fine line. And as Thomas says, I think we're still sort of in the early days of figuring out exactly what the role is there and how to get sort of the best role in terms of strengthening democracy. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, there, there's so much that we could cover. And I, I think that um, there, there's another question I kind of want to circle back to um, that touches on a lot of things that you all have brought up already. Um, but I'm, I'm, again, just trying to push, uh, push along this comparison with, with the U.S. and thinking about problems that, um, as I said in my introductory remarks, feel like things that people are paying attention to again in the U.S. as problems that are that are new-ish, that maybe the U.S. had historically, but is experiencing again. Um, and these are problems um, associated with foreign interference in elections in the past few election cycles, um, false accusations of election fraud, um, uh, concerns that election violence would disrupt uh, the pre-election period. Um, you know, there were concerns before the election that election violence would be used to disrupt election day. Um, and violence in the post-election period. And so I'm wondering if our, our panels can turn to this question. Uh, Jean-Marco, why don't you go first? Yeah, so, so foreign intervention in, in elections can have um, effects, negative effects on, on, on two dimensions. One, uh, on, on whether they are actually effective uh, at affecting the, the, the election outcome through different ways hacking or, or, or whatever, but second on, on how it triggers public discourse, right? And, and here I think we have something to learn uh, from the experience of, of Latin America in, in the past like 60 or 70 years, right? So, so in, the, in the past uh, few, few elections, um, whenever there is a, a leftist candidate fielded, uh, there are always claims about financing coming uh, from from Venezuela uh, in the in the past, going back to to the 60s, 70s, 80s associations uh, with, with Cuba, and and the, the the danger with that is is that it drives the focus away from from what we should actually be be focusing on, right? So so it it, it triggers. Uh, a debate based on on basically what what could be considered uh, as as rumors. So in in here, the hard question is is again, how do we go back uh, from these discussions about rumors uh, to to programmatic uh, politics, right? And and there some experiences from from other countries. I mean, Thomas has done fantastic research uh, in Benin on on how uh, like encouraging politicians to discuss uh, programmatic issues actually generate much more trust uh, among people, increases turnout, and so on. I mean, he can uh, tell about his research much better better than than, than I. But um, we should not only focus on 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 trying um, to to get at the point of, of the intervention, right? So if we're talking about about Russian hackers, uh, how do we uh, put together the correct safeguards? But also all the stuff that is coming up in in the media uh, later that divert us from from discussing substantive issues. I think that, um, it, you know, I do want to connect the answer to this question to things um, things that Isla has already talked about. And um, we, we have a few other questions from, from the audience that I just want to introduce very briefly. Um, and I, I can address some of them and we'll see if the panelists have, have things to say. The first is from uh, Owen Sioto from the Zambia Statistics Agency who asks, uh, whether there are machine learning applications that could be used in advance 
um, to prevent election fraud. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll start, I guess, by saying that, um, oh, that's one other question too, I'll just put two out. Um, how, this is from Grace Gordon from UC Berkeley. How do countries around the world handle the harassment of election officials? Um, I'll say that I have, I'm, I'm part of a group um, thinking about um, how to push for nonpartisan election administration in the US and um, the reports back from election officials are that they are experiencing significant harassment in this cycle, right? That this is something that's a really major problem. And many, going back to um, some of the comments that the panelists made earlier about good candidates running for office, uh, anecdotally, what we're hearing in the US is that a lot of um, pretty good election administrators are quitting, right? That they're they're saying they've had enough of their families being harassed and targeted with uh, threats of violence and um, generally being accused of being partisan when in fact uh, they're, they're doing their job uh, by, by most accounts. Um, so I wanted to throw those two questions out there. Um, on, the, on the first question about machine learning, I, I wanted to also mention that um, one of the more terrifying statistics I've heard about disinformation is that because it can be produced um, using AI and using various algorithms, um, that you can have like just the amount of uh, disinformation on YouTube about elections around the world um, that's auto-produced um, is is more than any of us could like than humans can even listen to right the volume far exceeds human capacity to monitor it um, and so in that sense it's not election fraud it's not directly addressing the question but I do think it's interesting to think about um, the problems associated with elections in which machine learning applications as well as um, some some other forms of, of more advanced technologies might be very helpful. Um, and that's one area that the sort of combating disinformation where it, where it just seems necessary because humans are not going to be able to deal with it. Um, I do think that um, there's there's a lot of things that we could talk about here. Um, but uh, let's see, Kate, do you want to um, yeah, reference some of the uh, election fraud detection? Yeah, sure. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think to um, our colleague from the, the the statistics office. So this is not directly in response to the role of machine learning, but just an, is kind of a, a slightly lower tech example. Like there have been a lot of studies where kind of the, the more classical election fraud, like ballot stuffing and, you know, just, you know, wholesale theft has been detected after the fact, really by sort of statistical anomalies, like you know, there, there's too many people aborted or the, the kind of patterns of numbers, like there's too many, you know, if you actually had random numbers between one and nine, they'd be sort of uniform distribution. But when people make up numbers, like to report uh, numbers, they tend to like overstate certain numbers. So you can kind of, there have been these studies that sort of these forensic statistical studies that sort of can detect uh, fraud after it's happened. I know your, your question was more about preventing fraud, but I think one of the the kind of promises of, you know, just sort of data, you know, big data and data analysis in general is it, it can be done very quickly, right? So if you can think of ways that it can be happening in real time, maybe it doesn't prevent someone from trying, but you could probably pick it up. And coming back to like Thomas's points about electronic voting, like there's a lot of analysis that can be done in real time. And if, you know, you had a monitoring team that could come in, you know, very quickly, it, it might have a preventative role as well as but in addition to sort of this complementary ex post kind of uh, forensic analysis. Um, Isla? Yeah, so I was going to say, um, related to this, not exactly addressing that question either, but thinking about in general how we get like um, data on what's going wrong in elections. I think electoral violence can be one of the things that's actually most difficult um, to get data on. And so we actually have a, a large scale study in Cote d'Ivoire 
where we're looking at different mechanisms for doing this. So we're looking at household surveys, surveys of leaders, and then also like monitors sent to different places. Plus what's widely available right now is like media reports on where there's electoral violence. And so thinking about just even how do you actually measure and get a grasp of violence, let alone fraud or these other types of inherently hidden um, influence is I, I think really one of the trickiest questions and one of sort of the places that I hope the field is gonna spend more time thinking about. Um, and definitely is something that now is newly relevant to the US. I think, you know, as, as um, you mentioned, Susan, I think we're all being asked to, to think about the US elections um, for the first time uh, perhaps in our careers um, because some of these issues really do pick up. But I think actually detecting not only fraud but all of these other types of like influence in the elections um, can be really difficult. We see cool protest data now collected um, in a variety of ways. And I think we'll be seeing more of this on electoral um, violence specifically committed by the state um, as well uh, going forward. Um, thank you, Isla. Uh, Jean-Marco, did you want to add to this? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, uh, I don't have much to say about machine learning uh, applications, but but I, I wanted to comment on, on Kate's uh, point about uh, the analysis of, of electoral data and how can that help us detect early election fraud uh, by bringing up uh, the example of, of the last Bolivian election, right? So, so they, data can be very useful, but it has to be used well. It can be extremely dangerous if it's not, right? And, and the, the example of the Bolivian election, I think, is um, is, is very informative. What happened is that uh, Evo Morales was running for for for, for re-election. Uh, uh, by the I think that by the evening of, of the election he was uh, losing by quite a bit. Suddenly there was an information shutdown for a few hours. When when information started flowing again, Evo Morales ended up uh, winning by a relatively large margin. Right. So no one stopped and did a, a very careful data analysis that one Kate was suggesting, but, but some electoral observers and notably uh, the Organization of American States uh, put out a statement saying, this, this change in the, in the results in so few hours is, is suspicious. And that, and that was used as a, as a data point to, to push uh, Evo Morales as a as a uh, Evo Morales' election as a fraud and, and to dismiss the whole process. Mm -hmm. Actually, there, there's been studies from researchers at the University of Houston showing that that it was not the case, right? The distribution was quite uniform. I've seen um, a lot of back and forth among um, academics on that election in particular. Um, we're we're nearly to the end of our time here, and I wanted to bring up one uh, potential elephant in the room that we haven't addressed very explicitly, but is definitely coming up in some of the questions we're receiving from the audience. And it it relates to the sort of utility of focusing on reforms in elections um, when one of the political parties is refusing to abide by democratic rules and norms and is really going hard in the direction of authoritarianism. Um, this and other trends that are really more related to democratic backsliding more than they are related to election security are of great interest to, to many of us, to me. To me. Um, and it is perhaps a good closing thought to think about lessons that the U.S. can learn 
from the rest of the world, not just about getting election procedures right, um, but also the ways in which um, at the same time, there's a need to focus on um, what can be done to combat um, this problem associated with a major political party and or large swaths of voters, just themselves no longer caring that much about um, democratic elections or democracy. Uh, because if you get the procedures right and that other phenomenon's going on, um, it's hard to um, think that the procedures and getting the procedural uh, aspects right are going to save us. So um, I wanted to, to close with that somewhat depressing, but I think very important thought. Um, and uh, please join me and um, in thanking our panelists and uh, thanking Janet Napolitano for bringing us all together, as well as the, the staff and Siga who, who, who ran all of this. Thank you. And, and, and Susan, I want to thank the panelists, too. This was great. That fascinating discussion. I appreciate um, all of your participation. And thank you all very much. Thank you.